All right, well, we are in a, uh, a sermon series titled Getting Back to the Why, and this is week three. With everything that went in to 2020, with everything that made up 2020, we had a lot to talk about in terms of the how and the what, right? What is a Christian's response to racial reconciliation? How do we navigate a world, a life of COVID and lockdowns and separation physically, separation spiritually? How do we think biblically about the election? And the how and the what are fantastic, extremely pragmatic. Getting back to the why, however, speaks to not necessarily what we do, but why we do it. Speaks to our motivation, why we do what we do. So this week we're going to ask the question, And we're going to let Scripture provide the answer as to the motivation behind our work. Now, let me start with this. Tomorrow is Monday. It's kind of hard-hitting preaching you guys sign up for here at Trinity. Tomorrow is Monday, which means for so many of us, it is the beginning of the work week. On Sunday, I don't know if you're anything like me, on Sunday I get to Sunday afternoon And I start to stare out into the week ahead. And I think about all the meetings and the phone calls and the schedules and the appointments. And maybe you think about the patients and the clients managing your household. One child has to be over here, but at the same time, another one's got to be over there. For some of you, as you stare out into next week, your search will continue for work as the effects of COVID continue to ravage us economically. Maybe you have a job, but it feels like a dead-end job. Others might be retired, and Monday is sort of no different than Friday. And this is week after week, month after month, and year after year. The question we're asking today is why? Now, be honest with yourself here. But it's church. I know, it's hard. Be honest. Let the answer just come to you. Why do you work? Why do you see patients? Why do you schedule appointments? Why do you volunteer your time? Why are you a lawyer? Why do you own your own business? Why do you manage the household? If you're a student, why do you study? Depending on which stage of life we're in, let's call all of this stuff work. Our question today is, why do you work? Now, as many of you know, in addition to pastoring here, I have the privilege of serving as the Chief Financial Officer of Covenant Christian Academy in Peabody. So let me tell you how much fun the last nine months have been in leadership of a church and a school during a global pandemic, racial tension, and the most divisive election in modern history. Now, when people are listening, us leaders say things like, these unprecedented times test the mettle of men and women and forge us by fire into being equipped to handle the blah, 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 right? But truth be told, I have never been more exhausted physically, emotionally, and spiritually ever. And I know so many of you feel the exact same way. You're caring for loved ones. You're on the front lines caring for patients. You're teaching students in ways that seem frivolous. You're learning from teachers in ways that seem frivolous. Business is shutting down. Entire industries being affected. If we do not have a motivation stronger than our own will, we will be overwhelmed when what we do gets difficult. 
we will be swallowed up and crushed by our work. But it's not just in times of trouble that we need a powerful motivation. Because when times are good, if we're not guided by a motivation purer than our own, the temptation will be to cut corners and compromise the integrity in what we do. If I just cheat on that exam, no one will ever know. If I fudge those numbers, if I skirt that rule. So we need a powerful and pure why we do, motivating what we do to sustain us in times of famine and keep us in times of plenty. Now before we get to what our motivation for work should be, I want to look quickly at a well-known teaching by Jesus illustrating exactly what our motivation for work should not be. Now, many of you will know these words by heart. Join me in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 25 through 33. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arranged like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith, therefore? Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, this is one of my favorite passages, and I lean on it often. We often hear it quoted, specifically verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But the passage begins with therefore, which means we need to pay attention to what comes before it. And what comes before it? Jesus is teaching about money. Jesus says in verse 24 that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. He does not say that you cannot have money. Jesus is not questioning what you have, but what has you. And in true Jesus fashion, he is getting to the heart of the matter, our motivation, the affection and the allegiance of our heart. So the question again, why do you work? How's your answer from a couple minutes ago sounding now in your head? Is it money? Is it climbing the ladder of success? Is it fame, vacations, making a name for yourself to try to live up to somebody else's standard for the praise of men? If those are our answers, we have a massive problem according to what Jesus just said in verses 25 through 33 based on the context of verse 24. Because that is exactly why Jesus tells us not to work. Look at what he says in verse 31 and 32. He says, you are focused 
on what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear, but that is what the Gentiles seek after. Jesus is saying, people who don't know me, people who don't love me, people who don't have my salvation, have my grace, have my kindness, have my power, people who don't have my joy, that is what they work for. That is what motivates them. That's what they focus on, and it drives them and you and me to despair. Jesus says that God knows we need clothing and knows we need food and knows we need drink. So it isn't a question of needing those things. It is a question of being ultimately motivated by them. But you say, wait, that doesn't make sense though. You study for the test to get the grade. You need the grade to get the degree. You need the degree to get the job, to get the power, to get the promotion, to get the raise, to get the car, to pay the bills, to get the house, to get, to get the, to get. Money and success and advancement and clothing and food and drink, these are all byproducts of work. But Jesus is saying they cannot be our motivation for work. Because if we replace the biblical motivation for our work with the byproduct of our work, again, when times get tough and the byproduct's not there, our work will crush us. They don't pay me enough for this nonsense. I mean, I don't say that. Some of you might say that, but I don't say that. <laughs> or we'll be tempted to cut corners again and compromise our integrity. If I just fudge these numbers, my bonus will be a little bit bigger. Now, every summer over the past several years, our family has had the privilege of traveling up to Camp Berea in August for their week-long family camp. I know some of you have, have been here before, been there before. They've got this lakefront property in New Hampshire, cabins, cafeteria, chapel, gymnasium. It's, it's really stunning. It's one of our favorite things to do. And one of the sections on the property is a place where, where there's a shooting range. Okay, you've got these little 22 caliber rifles, and it's one of my favorite things to do with our youngest daughter, Alden, right? Now, when she was young, she used to call this section man guns. This was not a statement on gender. This was an observation that it seems like only men can participate in this, which I think is so courageous that you were like, no, nah, I'm in, let's do this. But she called them man guns, which I thought was hysterical. But also when she was younger, she couldn't really hold the rifle to aim it. The rifle is as big as she was, if that makes sense. So, it's me and Alden laying on our own mattresses with our own rifles and our own bullets and our own targets downrange. And she's giving it everything that she has to hit her target. But I can see like the tree branches behind the target like falling down, <laughs> the mulch exploding. She was nowhere near it. Now, now she's very good, maybe too good. But back then it was just too hard for her to aim. So knowing my way around a 22, and the target being 20 yards away, you can almost throw the bullet through it. And wanting her to stay encouraged, I took my bullets and shot at her target. Bullets are gone, guns are away. You go up to your target to see how well you did. 
and she gets all excited because her shots are getting closer and closer to the bullseye. My target, not a hole in it. Which is all to illustrate that it does not matter how good of a shot you are if you aim at the wrong target. When we allow the byproduct of our work to be the motivation for our work, even if we hit the bullseye, even when you get the byproduct, you've aimed at the wrong target. And let's just look at one example from what Jesus says in this text. In verse 25, when Jesus says, is not life more than food? What he's referring to is not our day-to-day activity. The word translated there, life, is better translated soul. Your soul isn't your soul which lives forever. That which governs all you do is not that more than food and clothing. And Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil. They're here one day, tossed into the oven the next. We are of infinite value compared to that. Yet they do not toil. Toil. To experience the burden of grief through labor. Is that not true? When we work for the byproduct, when that's our motivation, it is not a surface level effect that it has on us. It cuts straight to our soul. And I know a lot of people right now who are experiencing the burden of grief, grief through their work, and you can feel it in your soul, and I'm one of them. We need, I need, something better than a fraudulent worldly motivation. And we were meant to have so much better. So let's take a look at Scripture, one more passage, and let's see what the motivation for our work should be. And as we wade into that, let me dispel a myth and potentially correct some theology of our work. Believe me, I know that work oftentimes feels like a curse. But if we go to the second page of the Bible, we see God creates time and space, creates everything out of nothing, just the power of his word. The universe, our planet, man, and he creates paradise. He creates the Garden of Eden. And isn't it odd that when you and I think of paradise, the first thing we will remove from it is work. But look at what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Ah, sure, yes. The God of the universe that just created everything, created billions of things we haven't even figured out yet, he just doesn't have a green thumb, needs us to get in there and roll up our sleeves. Far from that. God in his divine grace and love gives the crown glory of his creation, mankind, the ability to create and produce and develop and care for and discover. See, as part of shalom, as part of the original design of the universe, mankind is bestowed with gifts and talents and placed into a world in which we have the privilege of using those gifts and abilities all to glorify God. We've got to understand this from a theological perspective about our work. The Hebrew word there in Genesis 2.15, where it says work, 
is translated better as service. And just like love, service always has an object. There is always a who or what attached to our service. If I say I love, you would just sit there and wait for the next thing to come out of my mouth. Who? You love what? And it's the same with service. We don't just serve. There's an object attached to our service. This is why Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. They are opposing lords, if you will. One seeks to put you in chains, the other seeks to set you free. We were never intended or created to be active by, or passive bystanders, but active participants in the care of God's creation. Work was always designed to be service, service to God, and therefore our work is worship. Not worship of the byproduct, worship of the creator, which means that everything we do, whether you are a student, whether you are retired, whether you are the CEO or you empty the trash, God has a plan and a purpose for your life and your work, and we do everything as if we are serving him. We don't graduate out of serving God. We certainly don't retire from it. We don't work out there and worship in here. It is all meant to be worship. So we see the dangers in making the byproduct our motivation. And we see in God's creation his intention for what our work really should be. Now I want to take a look lastly at one more really well-known story of Jesus. And we're going to see it all come together. This is Jesus just starting his ministry, calling his first disciples to himself. Come with me to Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Luke recounts, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, this is pressing in on Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he, Jesus, asked him to put out a little from the land, And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boat so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their nets, their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Now you've got to understand the scene for this. Again, Jesus just starts his ministry. He's preaching about the kingdom, calling people to repentance and faith. He's standing there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He gets into one boat, pushes out from the shore, widens his angle, and teaches 
And then he asked Simon, who was Peter, to get into the boat and go fishing. Peter and his crew just fished all night, even more. What does Peter say they did all night? Recognize that word? Toiled. See, we're the fishermen here, Jesus. It's nice that you're a carpenter and all, but we're the experts. You're telling us to go fishing? We're exhausted. We're frustrated. We came home empty-handed, which means no fish, which means no money. And then this. Peter says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Not because he thinks he's going to catch anything. He already said they fished all night and caught nothing. They're done. They're washing their nets. And for the first time in Peter's life, he goes fishing not to catch fish. He goes fishing for no other reason than because the Lord of the universe told him to. And when Peter goes fishing for no other reason than to serve Jesus, what happens? It isn't that their nets aren't big enough. Their boats aren't big enough. In awe of the presence of the king of the universe, Peter falls at the knees of Jesus and is undone with repentance. But look at Jesus' response. This is the gospel. He doesn't give Peter and his friends a religious prescription to catch more fish. He extends them an invitation to a relationship. Follow me. Serve me. Learn from me. Worship me. And when we follow Jesus, when we set him as Lord over our lives, every inch of it, he uses us in ways we could never imagine and certainly in ways that we'll never expect. And when our motivation for work is fixed on him, we never again experience the burden of grief through labor because our toil turns into service and our work becomes our worship. Now, somebody may say, you seem to be getting a little dangerously close to a prosperity gospel, Pastor Man. Not even a little bit. Because when Peter and his friends left those fish on that beach that day, they signed up to suffer in ways they couldn't even fathom. Peter met his end, stepped out of this world and into the glory of the next, being crucified on a cross for his faith, but finding it unfit to die in the way of his Savior, he had them crucify him upside down. The promise of the gospel is never one of an easy life. In fact, the Bible speaks so often about the opposite. The promise is, however, a life filled with purpose and meaning because it is a life lived in service to the king. Which brings me to my last point. For our benefit and for the glory of God, it is vital that we see our work as service and therefore as worship. But as important as our motivation is, more important is the source of that motivation. Service to Christ should be our motivation, but why? That's the question we're asking. Why? 
Why should we work for Christ? Why should we serve Christ? Because he worked for you. And he worked for me. And this is where Christianity differs from every other religion and worldview. Every other religion is based on teaching or revelation from a prophet or a sage that you have to figure out, that you have to do. You can take Buddha from Buddhism, but you will still have the four noble truths and the eightfold path that you have to figure out and you have to complete. You can take the Brahmin and remove the Vedas from Hinduism, and you'll still have the laws and the goals to which you must attain. You can remove the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rabbis from Judaism, and you will be left with the laws of Moses that you have to obey. But if you remove Christ from Christian, you're left with Ian, and Ian didn't die on the cross for you. The source of a Christian faith and motivation for work is not rules or religion or regulation. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the greatest person ever to live, accomplishing the greatest work ever to be done. Look, if we rightly understand the nature of God and the nature of man, then we can see that the greatest miracle the Bible ever tells of is God forgiving man. The greatest miracle is not walking on water. It's not healing the sick. It is a holy and just God forgiving a sinner like you and a sinner like me. Because if God is just, and he is, sin must be punished. So how was God able to forgive? At the cross of Christ, Jesus took our sin and our punishment that we deserve so that all who would believe in him would have his right standing with God. The great exchange. Jesus suffered the beatings. He suffered the torture. He suffered the mocking. Jesus gave his life, taking on our sin and death, so that people like you and me who were dead in our sins could take on his life. But why? Why did Jesus do that work? To be famous? So we would talk about him 2,000 years later and say nice things? To be rich? To be happy? Why did Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, go through that? The author of Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? What was his motivation? Sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, marching to the cross and facing down separation from the Father, Jesus Christ stared into eternity and saw you and me, redeemed and restored to the Father. The work of Christ's death brought us life. Would it be that the work of our life brings him glory? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus, who does not come to be Lord over just part of our lives but Lord over all of our life. He did not come to just save part of our life. He came to save and redeem all of our life.
Father, as we consider the work that you've laid out for each and every single one of us, the gifts and the talents and the abilities that you've given us, Father, would we see, would we not see work the way that the world sees work, as a curse, as something that we just need to do to get what we really want? Father, would we see the work that you've laid out before us as service to you? And the way we do our work, would that be worshipful to you? Father, would everybody know of your love and your mercy and your grace? Would we be identified differently as people in our workplaces, whatever that is, wherever you call us into, as people who bend the knee before you and serve not to expand our kingdom and not with a focus on the byproduct of our work, but motivated by Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. To you be the glory and honor forever. Amen.